I'd rather improve my probability of success by being a little bit more patient and being a little bit more thoughtful and intentional about how I do this. And so much of it comes from. Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian Evans podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian Evans. This next guest is a financial master with a passion for crypto, sustainability, and art. Former Deutsche Bank whiz turned placement agent. He rocks the niche credit strategy scene, managing partner at Cedar Ridge Capital. He conducts, he conducts symphonies of institutional relationships while wooing with his credit and security analysis skills. With a BS in finance with the University of Scranton and a CFA charter holder, he's a conductor of success. Armed with Series 7, 63, 31, and three registrations, he's a virtuoso in the financial realm. When he's not making magic happen, you can catch Joe, my guest, attending Renaissance Revival events, providing that even finance wizards have a taste for the extraordinaire. Please welcome my next guest, the one and only Joe Azaro. How you doing today, Joe? Good, Christian. How you doing? Thanks for having me, man. Man, I'm looking forward to this conversation. And I want to you know, dive right into, obviously, we're going to be talking about some of your cool deal flow that you're working on. Very unorthodox, and as well as your curated way you build synergistic relationships. And we're going to be diving into a lot of that fun stuff. Definitely the microeconomy with the micro stuff's going on and how you navigate this, this uncertain times. But I want to dive into your journey from Deutsche Bank to placement agent. To unpack that a little bit, because that's totally out of the ordinary, totally different, two, uh, two different verticals. Help me understand how you went from Deutsche Bank, obviously working there for several years, to then get into the placement agent. Yeah, I mean, actually, I had started interning at Deutsche Bank when I was like 18 years old, right? So I was almost like, you know, I had been interning every summer and winter, just keeping my foot in the door. And effectively, after about three, four years there working full time after the graduate training program all in the credit space, I met the CEO of a placement agent business in a CFA class. You know, it's interesting when I, when I was kind of thinking about my career, it was either like an MBA for your network or your CFA to kind of just get, you know, an inch, an inch deep mile wide into some different financial instruments and really understanding the finance ecosystem. And funny enough, I ended up networking in the CFA uh, Sunday review class with the CEO of a broker dealer in New York called Stonehaven. And actually you met David Frank, you interviewed David Frank uh, some time ago on the show. And uh, so I got to know David Frank just from sitting within arm's reach of him. And he said, what are you doing as a credit analyst? He's like, you've got a great personality. You should be out talking to investors, talking to people, building relationships. And after I graduated in 07, um, I really wanted to get into sales, but every sales desk at DB was shrinking. And it was sort of like this chicken or the egg situation where nobody would give me the job without the experience and I couldn't get the experience without the job. And so I was kind of chasing my own tail and people are like, hey, Joe, you're great but I've got to fire three people for my team in the next year. So eventually David Frank said to me, hey, keep in touch with me in the next three months, I'm gonna have a job for you. And I kept in touch with David Frank every three months for three years. And then finally he called me at my desk at Deutsche Bank and said, Joe, I'm so sorry, I've been stringing you along for years, but if you're still interested, you've proven to me that you have what it takes to be a salesperson because you've sold me through this whole like long journey. And uh, I went and met with his, his partners and effectively just started running uh, West Coast distribution, mostly focused on hedge funds, selling hedge funds into the top 1,000 allocators all along the West Coast. So you're talking new money mostly, which I thought was really interesting about covering the West Coast. It was a lot of family offices, you know, within the tech space. And I was just building relationships from the ground up. I literally knew no one Christian. So it was 
cold emails, cold calls. I'm Italian. I'm a skinny foodie and I love food. And so I would go, you know, if I'm going to San Francisco, I would just book a reservation at one of like the best new restaurants for 10. And then I would just start building, you know, filling those seats with family offices and saying, Hey, I've got a table at rich table for 10, you know, next Thursday, do you want to come? I've got these families coming, you know, and all of a sudden just, you know, really at the end of the day, big piece of this job and, and kind of transitioning for me, building and those relationships through adding value first, right? These allocators, they all want to know each other. They're all looking at different deals and some of them have an expertise in real estate. Some of them have an expertise in venture. And so if I can help connect them so that when they see deal flow in an area that maybe isn't in their expertise, they can reach out to their newfound friends and say, Hey, what do you think about this? Right. And so to be that point of contact and that sort of, you know, uh, channel for them to get to know each other is important for them, but also important for me over time. So, yeah, that's how I kind of made the transition. And, and to be honest, Christian, it's actually really helpful to have an analytical mindset in a sales seat, or at least in a capital raising seat, because a, you're really only as good as your product, right? And so when you're going out and talking to people to have an understanding and to think like an investor, when you're looking for things, right? that really helps you find unique ideas. And then also when you're communicating those ideas with investors, you know, those investors are going to say, Hey, you know, investors are very funny. They're, they're always looking for a reason to say no. You know, it's, it's, there's, there's so much deal flow being thrown at them. It, you know, they're looking for a quick, no, no, thanks. That's not it. Here's why. And if you really understand these strategies and you really understand the risk involved, you can kind of at least dance toe to toe and kind of say, Hey, maybe you're not thinking about it. Right. And here's why. And I think having that deeper level of understanding has really been influential and helpful for me, at least in my career. So let's dive into this because I found this, the evolution, just even your outreach was very interesting and how that evolved. And then of course, I want to talk about the way you're able to align investment thesis and deal flow according to your LP base. And I thought that was actually very interesting as well. But the evolution, you said you started out, you didn't know any relationships, just like anybody. You, you don't know anybody in this industry, but yet you went out there and just started cold calling, cold emailing. And then all of a sudden it evolved into more of building relationships with, you know, obviously food. And that is an amazing uh, amazing adaptation towards towards your journey. Uh, what was what, what did that phase look like specifically? Did you start doing cold email, cold calling, and you realize okay that's working, but it's not as effective as say you know obviously that that food approach. What 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 were your thoughts or the way you analyzed your approaches, and obviously how you were able to fine tune it? Yeah, I mean in the beginning, Christian, it was just like dealing with no a lot, right? Like you know you're calling, you're just also just leaving voicemails and sending emails into this black hole of nothing where nothing ever comes back, nobody responds and, and just dealing with that and being okay with that and recognizing that there are little victories along the path and along the way to the bigger victories that you kind of have to, those, those little hurdles you have to get over and they, they kind of give you momentum along the way. And sales is so much about momentum, you know, within a process, but you know, other ways that I really found to be helpful was when, you know, instead of just hitting your head against the wall, sending the same email, calling the same person, you know, get smart, start researching those people, understand, you know, these are humans as well. These people have all had different, you know, pieces of their life that are important to them, understand who they are, go the extra mile when others aren't right. And really do your homework and, and then connect that to your own story, right? If you're just sitting there throwing spaghetti at the wall saying, Hey, look at this, look at this, look at this. People get tired of that. You know, and I think for me, at least not having a real sales training through a, an earlier part of my career, I had to learn that the hard way at times by going a little too far in moments, right? And that was something where 
it's, it's trial by error, right? You're, you're going to figure it out as you go. You're going to learn by trying and sometimes you're going to fail and that's only going to help make you better in the long run, right? And so other things I love to do with clients is once you understand a little bit more about a person, you know, I saw somebody, the CIO of a big family in New York, I saw his name. I'm a big racket player. I love squash, ping pong, you know, paddle, any, anything. I'm, I'm very fast and, and I'm long. So I can get most places on a court pretty quickly. And so like, I love the competition. I love the athleticism. I, you know, I love to sweat. Right. And when you can do that with another person, it builds a deeper relationship than just, you know, how many, how many times have you just went out for a beer with somebody, you know, and it's just, it, it kind of just melts into your mind of just, I've, yeah, I've done that a zillion times. And, you know, even re nice restaurants, it's you've done it a million times, but if somebody else is passionate about a sport, about an activity, I've went rock climbing, I've played squash, I've, you know, you go on runs, you just play pickleball, whatever the thing is, you know, I have meetings at Art Basel where I know there's other investors that are there. And so, and I know that they have a passion for art as do I. And so find those common denominators and link over that, right? And because at that point, that person's guard is down my guard is down. I'm not, I'm not even thinking about sales. I'm not even thinking about business. It's just here we are as two humans engaging in something that we both enjoy. That's where the magic happens. And then from there, you know, the, the beautiful thing is, is at some point then people say, well, so, Hey, what do you do? You know, what, what is it that you're working on? What is it that you're excited about? And then it's organic, you know? And so for me, so much of this was about doing research and also just doing things I enjoy, you know, and I tell that to so many people, it's like, I, 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 I am very unconventional in how I build and find relationships. You know, I, like I said, there's, you know, I think it, it, in, a, in a large way, being at those centers of gravity, where the people are, who you want to know, those target rich environments and not even trying, but just, it happens. You know, there's a flow to life and, you know, at Burning Man, at, you know, Art Basel, being, you know, in the Hamptons in the summer, being in Jackson Hole in the winter, being, you know, the, being in Europe in the summer, right? It's like in these areas, if you just go out and live your life, do the normal thing you want to do, you're going to meet the right people at the right time just from being at the right place. That's, that's just kind of how it goes. At least that's what I've experienced in my life. So was there a point in your outreach that all of, all of these ideas came to you and said, okay, hey, I got to go against the grain. I cannot be like any other capital raiser or, you know, placement agent. I got to go against the grain, not only in regards to my approach, but also in the deal flow that I have access to. Um, was there a pivot point? Was there a specific moment where you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I've done that. That's not working or it is working, but it's just not effective. And then there was, you know, obviously that evolution into, into what you just mentioned, which is incredible. And I love that approach. Cause like you said, you're standing above against the crowd, a crowd and people will always remember, oh man, I, I, I you know, the, the, the ping pong game or, you know, playing basketball or whatever it is, or a cold plunge, whatever it is that you guys do yeah. together. That's able to like, wow, that was awesome. I remember that. And I remember this guy and I mean, you know, and I like that relationship. So was there a pivot point during that? I think it was really, like I said, sort of just trial and error. Like, I think I, I knew like in one instance, you know, I saw this, this gentleman's name on, on, on a squash court record of like, Hey, oh, he's, okay. he's, he's open to play today. And I was like, I wonder if that's the same guy. I'm going to email him and find out. And then what I kind of realized was, you know, you, I think you have to play with life. And, and that's the same with work. That's the same with relationships. That's the same with dating, what, whatever. 
right? You have to take chances and try things. And at some point the, the, the right path will just work. You know, you'll take a chance and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to try this. And when you notice that that works, you start to feed that, that part of yourself a little bit more. And then all of a sudden you go, okay, there's actually something there. Like this is better than me just reaching out via constant, you know, mass mail, you know, you know, sending yeah. 200 emails, just blasting people. Because I think what's, what's happened is, and I think this is only going to actually get worse over time when, when you've got these, you know, this AI and all these, uh, mass mail campaigning solutions. And, you know, at some point you're going to have this virtual assistant who is, you're just going to say, Hey, send out 300 emails to everybody in my contact list about X, Y, and Z. And at some point people on the other side, they're already just like, no, I, I don't want to hear it. I, I, it's too much. Like I'm, it's noise. So I think you have to do that on some level, but I think you have to do it in a more unique way where you've actually put more effort in than other people. And I think at the same time, you've got to, look at life and in these situations from different angles, because these people, these investors, these family offices, they're getting phone calls and emails from hundreds of people a week with hundreds of different ideas. And so how do you stand out is the question that I, you know, you should kind of just play back in your head. And I think it comes down to what are they looking for? You know, sales is so much about listening and some of that listening. Yeah. Once you get them on the phone, once you start talking, you can ask those questions and, and hear what it is that they're, they're trying to tell you and what they're looking for. And then you can be a more of a value added service provider to them to be their eyes and ears. Cause I've got a very different network than they may have. And so I can help them find the things they're looking for just in different channels. But the other thing I think besides just listening is if you can't get that person on the phone, you can't get them to respond to your email. Look. Go spend an extra 20 minutes digging, you know, don't just keep sending the email into that black hole, take a step back and go, okay, that's not working. I either need to change to a different person within that organization, or I need to do a little bit more homework and actually try to build a relationship because that's where the relationship capital gets built from you taking your time to learn more about that person and then build that connection to them through the conversation. Awesome. 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 And I know we talked a little bit offline and I thought this was kind of a cool, and I want to bring this up where some individuals approach in regards to placement agent, you know, that it's, it's a quantity game in regards to like getting singles and maybe smaller checks. And you mentioned you're kind of go for those larger whales, right? Those that can deploy, you know, a larger check, et cetera. Right. Um, and what was the evolution for that? And then as well as when you are building these relationships, I would imagine you are strategic. You are obviously putting the work in on the front end so that on the back end, you're obviously very um, you know, specific on who you are reaching out to, who you are connecting with. And you know that these individuals are able to write that check, but you're obviously first, I just want to you know, reiterate that you're building that relationship first. That's you're going into that as a relationship building, not to get the check, but that relationship on the front end. But at what point did you start going away from the singles to those larger whales? Yeah, I think, and you know, you know, to your point about you can't go in looking or, or, or you know, wanting to, to close that deal with somebody. Some of these relationships I've had for 10 years and I've never done any business with, you know, yeah. and that's just an evolution. That's just, I can't force it. I can't push water. If you try to push just like dating, right? If you try to really push somebody into something that they don't maybe know if they want to be in yet, it's going to slip right through your fingers. That water is going to move right through your fingers and your hands. And so it's better to just, yes, build that relationship up front. And for me, it's like, you know, when, when did I transition into, you know, just focusing on bigger checks? You know, I think for a lot of this, 
what I've realized, again, it's an evolution. In the beginning of my career, I was calling anybody and everybody just to try to have a relationship and a point of connectivity and try to do some business with somebody. And what I quickly kind of realized over time, Christian, was it takes the same amount of time and effort and energy to convince somebody who has $10 million to invest half a million as it does to convince an institution who has 20 billion to invest 50 million, you know? So I'd rather just take that time and energy and focus it on the bigger folks who also, and no offense to the guy that's got 10 million, I'm sure he's very smart. I'm sure he has a lot going on, but I, I also, part of this job is just finding really smart people and connecting them to other really smart people. And what tends to happen is the, the, that, that mental capital, you know, tends to go into the, the larger institutions, the larger families where, you know, maybe not always, because sometimes, you know, you have very big pension funds that have a very simple approach and maybe they just, you know, it's, it's, it's not as complex and complicated, so they don't need to be geniuses. But um, I, I, and there are plenty of entrepreneurs who are absolutely brilliant as well. No, no, no disrespect there. It's just, I think part of the job of, of, of what I'm trying to do is just connect smart individuals, get them on the same page and finding those smart people, building friendships with them. Right. Cause at some point it's no longer just work, right? At some point, these are just people that I have long tenured relationships with that I'm, you know, I just enjoy talking to them. I talk to them about markets. I talk to them about what's going on in their life. I talk to them about what they're looking at, what they find interesting. And, you know, that's a beautiful thing because then I'm not just sitting here pushing product, right? That to me is like, oh, I, I hate it. It's just the worst. It's like that. that's not what life is about, right? Life is about relationships. Life is about building connection with people. And then and, and across a, a spectrum of things to talk about and discuss and what's happening in the world. And then from there, you can uncover, oh, that's how they view the world. That's what they're looking for. That's, you know, that's how I can add value to them by actually finding them something that meets their need. And you're only going to uncover that when their guard is down, they're talking, they're shooting the shit, and they're kind of just saying, hey, you know, uh, here's what we're looking for. Here's what we're excited about. And here's why I think it's really interesting. Well, you're so intentional with your approach and you're so relational aspect and it, it's so refreshing. That's why I wanted to have you on because right away when we were talking for this pre-podcast, it was, I could tell you're very relational in regards to, you know, really understanding who you're talking to and really, and you use this word, I love this word, curating, not only the deal flow, but the way the activities that you structure these relationships on. So I thought that was really cool. I want to kind of talk a little bit, you mentioned this earlier on, I want to kind of loop back around on this. When you mention a deal flow, not only are you curated on what deal flow, it is very you're, you're very methodical in, in what deal flow you work with to help raise capital, but also I thought it was very interesting. You you don't just pitch pitch it to your investor, you know, Rolodex, but you kind of help them understand maybe how it could fit into their their investment thesis and say, well, you mentioned, Billy Bob, that you wanted XYZ in the next seven years. And hey, by having this into your investment portfolio, this could help get you accomplish that XYZ that you were mentioning. So I thought it was interesting where it wasn't just yes or no, you were trying to help them kind of understand how to you know, get it down to the goal line, if you will. Um, what did that evolution look like in regards to that approach when you are having that conversation and maybe that individual like right away they say no, but then you have to explain to them, oh, this is kind of the vision I'm seeing. This is the reason why I brought this deal, this curated deal to you to say, hey, this might be something along. Maybe it's kind of outside of your vertical normally or outside of your investment thesis, but I find that it could be a very synergistic relationship. Yeah, I think initially I was sort of just, you know, 
I was just kind of saying, okay, just, 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 just push everything out there. And, and as soon as the investor says, no, okay, fine. I back up and I, I, I that's it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to push back and I'm not, but I think, you know, sales requires a little bit of confrontation, you know, it requires a little bit of not being afraid to, to have a difficult conversation. And, and so, you know, I think for a while I was, finding whatever came my way or whatever I was being given to sell, I was selling. And then I think as I kind of came out on my own and established my own practice and business, I started to just think more like an investor. And, you know, in some cases it's, it's, it's really great, but um, I've had, you know, to think like an investor and to wear that hat um, is something that, you know, maybe, maybe you're patient, maybe you're not pushing to just sell the first thing that comes because you, you, you really want to have a big trade and you really want to sell something, but be patient and wait for the right thing. Because when you have a good product and you know, and you've really thought through why you think that product is valuable and, and important in this kind of market environment, I think that story resonates a bit more and you have a deeper understanding of what that investor is looking for. And maybe just through your conversation, you, you uncover, Hey, they like, you know, for me, I really like to focus within specialty credit. You know, I, I, looking backwards on my career, you know, it's so, it's so clear, right? Oh, I was a credit analyst at Deutsche Bank. I really understand credit. I understand how to think like an investor and what makes a good credit opportunity versus a bad one, the waterfall structure of payments, all that. And so, you know, looking backwards, it's very clear, but I think I have a really good, um, compass for finding that product and thinking like that investor and looking for things that are, you know, there's good asymmetric returns, there's an expertise required, you know, there's a, there's a number of different things that you could look for within that product set to basically help you find something that might be more institutional or higher quality. And, and really, I think spending that extra time on the on looking for those things is so worthwhile. And that's really, I think, where from there, you're going to be bringing people things that are more valuable to them. And, and, and in some cases it's, you know, I'm, I'm playing more of a role of maybe I don't have that product myself. Maybe I only, I tend to only work with a couple of products at a time. I don't want to be the guy with the raincoat, like, Hey, what do you like? What do you like? What do you like? You know, I, I, I try to just, you know, have a couple of good ideas within a vertical and focus on those and really become more of an, a product expertise in those areas. And then, you know, I think, if, but because I'm affiliated with a broker dealer, Stonehaven, that has, you know, all of these different, there's 50 other brokers like myself that work within that platform. So if I talk to an investor and they say, hey, you know, I'm not actually looking at specialty credit right now. I'm actually looking for venture. What do you have in venture? Now, if I don't have anything, if I'm not working with a manager in that space, I can go down, you know, the, the broker dealer menu and kind of look and, and analyze and try to find, you know, maybe there's five or six different things within venture there. But I can find the best one and then basically, you know, act more surgical, act more like a sniper and just try to connect that one shot. And for me, you know, that evolution of less is more has been just it applies to everything in life. You know, it's it, it, it helps you to understand your product better because you're not you're not juggling 50 things. You know, you, you can you can deliver a higher quality product to not only your investors, but also to the managers who you're working with and, and servicing.
It's so powerful because I got a friend of mine. He's got a huge ecosystem, and it's and what what I realize is it's just a rolodex of basically twenty thousand investor emails, and then he's got a ton of deal flow, and he basically pushes out a newsletter email and say, "Hey, this is what we've got. Do you want some or whatever?" And what I realized was that became a commodity, and I like where you obviously elevated yourself, where you only work with a very very small amount of deal flow, but also maybe some rolodex and make that alignment, like you just mentioned. I like that analogy, the sniper like, right? You are making a very intentional. Uh, one kind of hit, and you're very, very focused on, on on what that looks like. Now, let's turn a little bit our focus toward your methodology and criteria. Like you mentioned, less is more, right? So you are only dealing with a handful of companies. Everybody and, to, and their mom is looking to raise capital in today's market, and you know everybody's looking, you know, for for money. And I know it's easy to to find deals that are like, hey, we want to, you know, can you help us raise? Can you help us raise, etc. And you may or may not know some people that are interested in that deal flow, but you have to say no a lot of times, right? Those that are successful tend to say 90, you know, no to 90% of the things and only focus on maybe, you know, the top really 10% or maybe even the 8%. My question is, is what is your methodology? What are you looking for? Because I know you mentioned offline, you, you've got some really cool deal flows. I know you obviously mentioned, um, you know, the, 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 the private credit, but you also mentioned a friend of yours and the intellectual property kind of uh, thesis, which I found that very interesting in the commodities as well. Um, what what is the way you think about it in your methodology or criteria? Does it have to hit a certain kind of criteria to say, okay, hey, I'm willing to open up your you know open up your rolodex for this for this specific deal? What does that look like? Yeah, good question. I think I think it's a number of factors, right? And again, it comes back to thinking like that investor, and, and, and it's so much more of an art than a science. You know, it's not like a formula, like oh, if they have you know, this amount of AUM plus this amount of people in the team and the return stream looks like this, then that's a good manager. It is a feeling, right? And some of that, so, so first off, there's people, right? It's like the people, the process, the performance, those are like the three Ps in a way, right? And the pedigree of those people, where did they come from? What kind of experience do they have? What gives them an edge relative to the 30 other people that are doing this, right? And I think that is something so important because Again, even when I bring an allocator in, it's, it's people to people, right? I'm just, I'm just a matchmaker. I'm just bringing two people in a room together and saying, you're smart, you're smart. You guys should talk. There's an interesting opportunity for you both to make a lot of money together. Go. And if they do, then I also win. Everybody wins. They win, I win. The manager wins, investor wins. It's great. So for me, it, it, it pays to spend a little bit more time and be a little bit more thoughtful about building that portfolio of like what I what, what arrows I have in my quiver. And so, you know, a lot of it is, yes, what is their performance? Of course, I want something that is going to have a, a juicier return, but it's also relative to the risk that you're taking to get that return. And so that risk reward functionality is super important. So if I can get a really high return, but there's a ton of volatility or a ton of risk associated with it, these guys are like doing some crazy strategy out in the middle of who knows where, and, you know, it's highly skeptical and there's a lot of, you know, gut macro risk, whatever you know, maybe I just don't know the people that would find that interesting. That could be a great deal. That could be a great opportunity. Those guys could 10 extra money in, you know, in a week, but I just might not know those people. And so I think it's, it's so much about what, who are the people, what are they doing? Where is their expertise from? Why do they have that expertise? Is it sustainable, that expertise? What is the risk they're taking to generate that return? And then also, you know, um, how are they thinking about building the business over the long run? You know, a lot of these allocators, what's, what's great is they want to work with people that they can work with 
over the next 10 years, you know, constantly selecting new product, new managers, new hiring of new managers. It takes time. So if you can find a young team that's doing something unique and they're building a long-term business in a space that's, that's, that's emerging, then, you know, then the allocator can cut a check today, do all that homework up front in year one, make the investment. Maybe typically they start with a smaller amount and then on fund two or the next re-up, they tend to do less work. They still re-underwrite the manager, but it's less work. They've already done the large majority of the work up in the front. And then they tend to scale up and write a bigger check. And then fund three, they write a bigger check. And, you know, it's like they can grow with these people. So really, I'm looking for niche and inefficient spaces where there's people that are taking advantage of that inefficiency, where there's asymmetric returns, where there's like down, the downside is capped and protected, but you've got a nice strong upside with, you know, potentially it can, it, it can be equity like in a way, but maybe I'm getting very consistent cash flow along the way. So, so yeah, so much of it is a feeling about the people. And then of course there's, you know, the performance and why are they better than everybody else? And so, you know, a lot of times I'll get an introduction from a friend who says, Hey, can you look at this? You know, I have a friend of mine who's raising money over here for this thing and I'll look at it and then I'll kind of just, you know, say, okay, do I know anybody else that's doing this? That's better. Right. There, there's kind of like there's got to be a bar for why I'm going to work with that person relative to anybody else that's doing the same thing out there. And then the other side of that is, do I even know the right people? Is this a high net worth product? Is this a family office product? Is this institutional? Right. And that that gauge of if something is institutional, I always say this to managers, it, it, it's 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 not a formula. Again, it's a smell. It's a taste. It's something that like you can't just just do a b and c and now you're institutional you know it's like it is it's how it's you know kurt cobain from nirvana has a song something in the way and there's something in the way that you do things it's not it's not just what you do and how it's something in the way you present yourself you hold yourself you walk into a room people can sense that that you know you are you have the confidence you you are a serious real person in a way and so that's kind of the makeup, you know, and then over time, Christian, you know, even within certain spaces, I've had investors come to me and say, Hey, can you help me find a quant manager, you know, and he's got to have a B and C characteristics. He needs a sharp ratio of Y he needs, you know, you know, uh, volatility can't be more than X and the biggest drawdown can't be more than Z. And you start to hear that, right? And yeah, I, of course I can go out and just find, try and look, and I've been looking and uncovering and trying to find that quant manager, but also that, that influences and shapes how I'm now looking for product, right? Oh, okay. If that's how you think about the world, Mr. Allocator, that's going to cut a hundred million dollar check into something. And you think that's the defining qualities of a really high quality product. I need to now incorporate that into how I go out and move through my, my network and landscape looking for those things. Because if I go out and, you know, take, take a product that's got a, a one sharp or less, and, you know, there's people out there with a two sharp, it's going to be a tough battle. You know, I'd rather improve my probability of success by being a little bit more patient and being a little bit more thoughtful and intentional about how I do this. And so much of it comes from, really listening to how other people are thinking about the world who are smarter than me, who have been doing this much longer. And just slowly over time, you get smarter and smarter and tighten up the process and tighten up the process until it's more efficient and it's just streamlined. And, you know, it, it, what I've also realized within relationships, you know, after 10 years of knowing somebody, there's so much trust built that to, to 
convince them. And by the way, I'm convincing nobody. The people I'm engaging with are so much smarter than I'll ever be. And it's more just showing them something that I think is valuable for them, right? Or that I think they should look at because I think it's a novel and unique way of, of approaching a market and a space. And so, you know, after 10 years and longer of knowing somebody, it's, it's not as much of an uphill battle. It's, you know, it's, it's a conversation. Hey, what are you looking at? What are you doing? Oh, I've got this thing. You know, it's kind of, it kind of fits that, that box of what you're trying to fill. Would you be open to a conversation? You know? Yeah, sure. You know, Joe, we trust you. We've been working with you for a while. We, you bring us good things. So yeah, you know. It's so incredible. Like you mentioned, I mean, you've got some relationships in LPs that you've got a relationship for the last 10 years, but never had actually done any business. But it's it's that whole contextual. You probably still showed, showed them deals. You still probably showed relationships. You still probably went out and played ping pong together or whatever it was. But uh, it is that, like you mentioned, that uh, comes down to you You will do business at some point. And obviously you've done business with other individuals as well. And, and they, they have, you know, wrote a, a $100 million check. My question to you now is a little bit in regards to kind of the the, the macro economy, things are changing drastically. I've noticed a lot of my family offices, every family office that has their own kind of investment thesis, their approach. Some focus on just on different verticals. And there's tons of different verticals in the in this in this ecosystem, which I found very interesting. And I know this is constant evolution. It's constantly a journey. Things are always changing at the macro economy. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of capital slowing down from the VC world and being deployed there. A lot of more capital, you know, sitting on the sidelines in the private equity world. Some are going toward and deploying capital in just direct deals. I'm noticing that I'm seeing a kind of a shift toward a lot of family offices deploying just toward direct, uh, direct deals and more of uh, you know operational kind of approach. And some that are going for more of a fund approach because definitely in the generative AI, they may not have the expertise. And so they kind of rely on you know those, those funds uh, and those analysts to be able to help them deploy that capital. What are you noticing? We, when you were talking and dialoguing, I know, um, you know obviously the, the landscape constantly changes, but what are you noticing in regards to the heartbeat of, of today and you know at the macro economy right now, what, what you're noticing with a lot of your LPs, where they're deploying, what's kind of sexy, what's inter engaging, what's, what's creating a lot, of, a lot of conversation around some of the, the topics or some of the, the, the verticals that they're deploying capital toward? Yeah, uh, great question. And I think, you know, it, it is so challenging to answer that because there are obviously there's so many different walks of life. Everybody's doing different things. Everyone has a different approach. Some people are, are you know, there's, there's been this whole denominator effect, right? Where, you know, public portfolios have decreased in value. And so therefore the, the private portfolios, you know, when it used to be maybe 50-50 public and private and liquid and illiquid, because the liquid portfolio has dropped in value on, on a pro rata basis, the illiquid portfolio is now 60% instead of 50%. And so many folks are actually kind of sitting on their hands, kind of saying, we need to, we need to really get more liquid in our portfolio so that we're not over allocated to privates and illiquids. And so selling illiquid investments in long-term 10 year plus life vehicles in this kind of environment is harder. And in general, the fundraising environment right now is harder. You know, people are, it, it, people are more patient and waiting and selective and they're in no rush to do things until the, the macro economy feels safer. Now, you know, some institutions just have cash constantly coming in that they need to allocate. And so, you know, but, but they're, they're, they're not writing probably as many checks as, as they once were. And so, yes, while direct deals, you've seen many families kind of get into that space. You've also kind of seen from what I've heard is many families have just been kind of like shooting from the hip at direct deals. Like, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, bang, that sounds interesting, bang. And then what they realize when they then take a step back 
they say, oh, hold on a second. Now we have this like blob of a portfolio of these like 50 direct deals with maybe exposures that overlap into different areas. You know, we've got way too much exposure to automotive and we didn't even want that or realize that because we've just been shooting up these things without like a top down investment policy statement of we want to have this much allocation to private. We want to have this much allocation to venture. We want to have this. It's like when when these sexy deals come, sometimes it's almost too hard to resist and say no it's like oh the you know it's, yeah they sound these it's storytelling you know and the direct deal sometimes it's so you know it, it is exciting and so i think what, what you'll kind of see is um people are playing a little bit more into the liquid space um so maybe hedge fund strategies active management things like that um people are also using products and solutions that are much simpler when you've got, you know, a risk-free rate at over 5%, why do I need to really go down the risk spectrum and take more and more risk for, you know, seven or eight or 10%, you know, you can just use simpler investment products and instruments to get your, to your return targets. And so that's been an interesting thing, but also I think with so much uncertainty in the macro economy and, and, and where the equity markets are going, if you can get a straight 12 to 15% net return via a credit product, right? That's kind of an equity-like return with secured credit, you know, uh, products. I think that's also really interesting. And so, you know, when I read a report recently, um, where are the funds going? Like, where's the fund flows happening? And you kind of saw, you know, it was coming out of private equity. It was even coming out of private credit. It was coming out, it was basically coming out of everything except secondaries. Because what you saw was this denominator effect is forcing some groups to actually liquidate some of their illiquid investments to free up more capital to put into liquid markets. And so, you know, secondary funds were, were, were actually, you know, in a very interesting space and a very interesting opportunity. They tend to do well in periods of market stress because you're able to purchase things at significant discounts. And just, you know, you have a much shorter J curve effect, you know, that the duration is, is shorter than a regular long-term private equity or venture lockup. So instead of being locked up for 10 years, maybe it's locked up for five years or six years or four years, you know? So I think that's been an area where I've been seeing appetite and interest. And that's largely a, a derivative and function of, I think people got a little bit too illiquid in privates because what's nice about privates, if you are a big institutional allocator, if you're in really liquid hedge fund products or market-based products, every quarter when you're at your board meeting, uh, you've got to explain why, you know, they go line by line and they just look at, okay, which funds are down a lot. Oh, why, why are we in this? Why are we in this? And every quarter you've got to kind of justify the bad things in your portfolio. Whereas when you, when you, when you lock up your money in illiquids and you set it and forget it, right. It's kind of like, Ah, yeah, it's it's working. You know, it's not mark to market, so you know who cares? It's 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 a ten year investment. It's going to be fine, and that that has I think alleviated a lot of internal bureaucratic stress for many of these institutional allocators. Let's dive into the secondaries because the secondaries I find interesting because there is this discrepancy between the buyer and seller right now in regards to the price because the some of these 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 companies were valuated. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, let's just talk about one example, one, a few years, I mean, a few months back, the valuation was $100 a share. Now they're asking $20 a share because the valuation drastically decreased. And we're seeing that in, 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 the, in the secondaries, that is. 
My question is because there is a discrepancy because between the buyer and seller, the seller may not want 20 bucks. Maybe they're, they want 80, 90 or whatever, like the, 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 the past valuation, but the, the buyer is like, well, no, I'm not going to buy, you know, 80 bucks now, you know, because now it's a buyer's world and they're saying, well, I'll, I'll give you 30 bucks for this share and so forth. So you're exactly right. There is, is this opportunity uh, for growth in that regard, but I'm noticing there is that discrepancy. Do you feel like that, that will iron out and the market will embrace that at some point, that discrepancy and between the buyer and the seller, or uh, do you think that's just going to be kind of a longer timeline and, and getting that, that uh, up and running? You know, I think, I think it really depends how badly those LPs need that cash. Right. And, you know, Hey, I'd love to get 450 bucks for this pen. Right. I don't think anybody's going to pay me 450 bucks for it. You know, the market might be a dollar, right? How much you want to pay me for this? You know, it's not really worth that much. And if the market's telling me that that, that instrument or that, that, that product is only worth 20 cents. Yeah. I can hit and hum and haw and say, Hey, I want 80, but one of two things is going to happen. You're going to sit in that trade until it unwinds, which could be five or six years, or you're going to sell it for what the market's going to give you. And maybe you'll meet somewhere in the middle at, you know, 40, but you know, finding that buyer and, and, and meeting in the middle is really a function of how badly do you need the liquidity? And unfortunately what will end up happening is, is if that seller does need liquidity, he's going to get burned. And so I think, you know, in, in some cases, Christian, when family offices go direct, you know, that the case for direct versus funds is, you know, okay, well, I, I, if I go direct, I don't have to pay a fund manager, all these fees. And, you know, that's better for me. But what you kind of also have to understand is when shit hits the fan and things get a little ugly and that, you know, you need to get out. Um, if you can't unwind that trade yourself, or you can't, you know, work it out yourself or sell it on your own, that asset, whatever it is, having a fund manager in place that has an expertise, that has a network and a space is going to extract more value for you and protect your capital um, in that sort of draconian scenario relative to just doing a direct deal where, hey, good luck, you know, figure it out on your own. You're a big boy. You don't want to pay a fee. So yeah. now you've got to sort it out. <laughs> And so a lot of times that, that's, that's, a, that's a challenging conversation or a challenging situation for these families to, to, to evolve in these meetings. But, you know, that's the reality of the situation. That's, that's why you work with a manager. Well, it's, I always look at it like a good analogy is like, you know, having a property manager that knows how to run a, a real estate. Okay, they can take care of the renter. They can take care of the fixed toilets. They can take all the care of all this stuff. Yeah, they cost a little bit extra, but they, guess what? They take care of a lot of that stuff, like that fund manager. Or you could just buy the real estate yourself, but now everything relies on you. You have to take the phone calls with these 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 tenants. You have to go and fix this. You have to go and fix that. And and you're exactly right. A lot of these family offices are like, hey, let's do these direct deals because it's it's you know you have more control. But sometimes with that also comes a lot more responsibility. And it's like, oh, I don't, I didn't really want all this. I didn't really want to sign up for all this. So it is an interesting dynamic and foundation. Now I am I'm somewhat familiar with the secondary market. I deploy some in, in the secondaries and, and the VC in regards to capital. I um, I'm always intrigued. I am not really very well versed in the private uh, credit, and I always found this. Uh, play very a vertical very interesting and i've got a lot of friends i understand the concept because it is the risk reward is actually very very secure and i just want to ask you in regards to some of your your portfolio you don't have to mention their names or their, or their deals but how do they look at it what are the certain kpis or metrics that they're optimizing for in regards to that specific vertical of the of the private uh, private credit um, i would imagine they're looking for assets that have some sort of um 
Well, just help, help us understand how a lot of your LPs kind of structure how they're looking at these these deals, specifically in, in that uh, private credit uh, vertical. I think private credit is really kind of blossomed because a lot of banks have kind of stepped out of lending due to regulatory capital requirements. And so it's created this nice white space for private capital to step in and lend money at a really attractive rates of return, right? Where they don't have those same regulatory requirement, you know, uh, needs of a bank. And so I think how a lot of investors look at private credit is sort of a, a fixed income replacement. So, you know, while for years, while you had these low rate environments, um, you know, with, with easy money, um, private credit was this, was this solution to, okay, you, you'll, you'll have to take some illiquidity risk and illiquidity, you'll have to lock your money up for five to seven years, whatever it may be. But if I can reliably get an equity like return of, you know, depending on the space you're in, right? Not all private credit is created equally. Um, I prefer the nichier kind of more off the run because, and I require stuff, I, I prefer stuff that really requires an expertise because that's going to build a moat around your space where competition isn't just going to step in and eat your alpha up or eat up your excess return. Whereas if you're just a, you know, you, you're just a lower middle market, private credit lender, um, anybody can step in and lend to Joe Schmo or whoever it is that you're lending to. Whereas if, if you need an expertise, you need a real understanding of the market, you need to be, you need to be, you need to know that space better than anyone. Um, your deal flow is going to be really unique. Your downside protection is going to be there and your upside is going to be there and it should be more sustainable. And so I think for many of these allocators, they're really looking for teams and people that are operating in uncorrelated and niche spaces where they have this expertise. There is downside protection. You've got that risk reward is balanced nicely where, hey, you know, if I can get 10%, you know, from corporate bonds or whatever it may be, um, if I go a little bit out on the risk spectrum or at least perceived on the risk spectrum within private credit, if I can get 15% net, right? And I'm in my loan to value instead of, you know, in real estate, maybe it's 70% and higher. If I can get loan to values that are sub 50% and my net return is looking like it's over, you know, 15, then that balance to me feels better, right? I think a lot of allocators, that's how they tend to think about, you know, looking at and investing within private credit and trying to find unique streams of cash flow. And so much of it is also about income, right? How do you generate income? How do you, you know, for, for certain people, they, they, they lean more heavily on private credit. And there's been, you know, the private credit has just been this like booming space that continues to grow and grow and grow. And I think it is because, you know, a lot of the traditional lenders have kind of gotten out of those spaces. And yet there's so many businesses that need debt to grow and, you know, they have assets. And so that's the key thing is really understanding what are the assets of this business? If we had to unwind this and you know step in and foreclose, who are we selling it to? And so, having that understanding, having those the, those networks and relationships within those specific bespoke markets, is I think you know really what makes private credit hum. At least for me, you know, is finding those niche markets where people are doing things a little bit differently. They're getting more return, and maybe they're not taking as much risk. When you talk about niche markets, um, can you give us an example uh, of that in regards to kind of a uh, contextual, like where they would deploy capital in that kind of niche. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I can give you a few, I mean, I'll just, uh, within like, for example, factoring or litigation finance, or, oh, you know, maybe within a commodity market or maybe within, you know, there, there's all kinds of new ways to lend, right. It could be, uh, you could be lending against, um, yeah, patents and intellectual property. You could be lending against, 
um, you know, aircraft financing, and you know, there, there's a zillion ways. Anytime there are assets that are that have value, it then comes down to having somebody who's an expert in that space to unlock that value, and really who understands those assets, what they're worth, and then how to effectively create liquidity around them. Do most of your investors in the private credit space do they like um, you know? allocating it toward hard assets or because some of these service-based businesses, maybe they don't have the hard assets, but they have other, like you just mentioned IP and other things and maybe the software itself, but how do you value, uh, how do you put valuation uh, on that, if you will? And how do you kind of, you know, loan against that? So what, what, what cause obviously when you have hard assets, you have something at least that you can sell resell if, if everything goes, goes to bust and you never want to you know say that that's going to go to bust, but I mean, you obviously want to, uh, have a contingency of worst case scenario naturally, uh, definitely when you're underwriting and so forth. So, how do you? What do you notice in regards to your 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 uh, rolodex of investors? It totally depends on the investor, right? Some investors really want there to be hard real assets backing those in, those loans, and they really want to understand, you know, what that loan to value is in a sense. And then there there's there's other models now where. You know, I've seen, uh, I'm not working with anybody like this, but I've seen people that do revenue-based lending within the, the technology space and software space, which is also pretty interesting, right? Because you've got so many of these recurring subscription-based businesses that have cash flows that go into the future that you can almost on some level securitize, right? And so, you know, so much of these these financial instruments and, and, and you know, mechanics is, is basically trying to take those cash flows that are you know in present value future cash flows in a way right and just bring those cash flows forward at some kind of npv or discounted rate and so you know i think it, it's 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 all just financial engineering you know and so it depends on what the investor likes some investors prefer to really have things they can you know just just do real estate some investors just, we just only lend yeah, against real estate that's... you know it's very simple it's not too complex some some folks love the complexity you know, some folks hate it. They, it's, they don't even waste my time. I have one friend. He uh, he calls. He has like this uh, this this. I, I call it the, the Scott ratio, uh, and it's it's for him. And he basically says it's my brain damage to return. It's like how much brain damage do I have to exert to understand the complexity of this strategy and what they're doing and where the risk is for the return that I'm getting, and not only just the return, but you know the size of the check that I can invest into that. Yeah. So it's really, you know, it's an interesting methodology. And so if, if something's just too complex, he's like, no, thanks. Not even worth my time. I don't want to waste my time, your time, their time. It's a no. Whereas, hey, if it's really simple and I can get my arms around the collateral very easily, it makes a lot of sense to just kind of say, okay, like this is simple. I get it. And I can get a 15 or whatever the number is that means everyone's got a different bogey of what they're trying to hit within their portfolio. And some of it's based on, Hey, what our spending is, or, you know, what we expect, you know, Hey, if our, if our, our pie chart or our portfolio, if we want to have 20% to credit, but you know, we really want to have that piece of the portfolio generate, you know, five basis, 500 basis points of return for us. Okay. Then what do we need to hit in order to get that? And they kind of will back into their return profile, right? Based on the size they're willing to commit to it and what they really need to get in their overall portfolio. They'll kind of build their own little hurdles. 
Okay. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm very familiar with definitely the real estate because obviously that is very well known in regards to loaning that out. And then, uh, and then I'm just always interested in like, you know, obviously you got the HVACs, you got the plumbers, th those are kind of hard assets. We have something of tangible assets, but then like you just mentioned, there are some really sustainable and very successful, um, you know, subscription models, if you will, or, you know, software, uh, SaaS kind of models that have incredible revenue, but obviously how do you allocate that? So, um, th there are opportunities out there, but like you mentioned, it is like, it's dependent upon each investor. So I appreciate okay. kind of unpacking that a little bit. Um, I want to get a little personal for you, man. I, I know we talked offline and I thought this was really interesting. You, you wanted to bring this up and I, I wanted to bring this up as well. There was something that happened in your life where you had someone that you lost and, um, and that, that moment helped you establish a new paradigm and new perspective about your own life. And you don't have to go too much into detail if you don't want, Joe, but I'd love to help me understand what happened in that situation that helped you become the person and the way you think and the philosophies that you currently have now, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, loss and death uh, in a lot of ways can teach you so much about life, right? And uh, during, you know, two years ago, I lost like three people that were all under the age of 42. And one of them was my best friend of like 17 years. And... Uh, amazing guy, just absolutely beautiful human. And just, you know, I think going through those sort of things in life puts things in perspective. You, you tend to look in the mirror a little bit more real with yourself and kind of saying, you know, I don't know, man, for so long, Christian, I kind of just assumed I was going to live forever. I assume me and all my friends, I don't think about mortality in that way. I've been, you know, somebody once told me, you know, the first 30 years of your life, real slow, you know, the next 30 years of your life like that. And then, the next 30 years are super slow again. And so it's like, you know, I think if you don't have that intention about how you're moving through life, which direction am I going? How am I enjoying my life? Am I happy? And, you know, asking yourself these very basic questions, you know, I think within our society and especially within these big metropolitan cities, we tend to just get like tunnel vision on these things that we're told are really important, you know, to have a lot of money and to work hard and yada, yada. But really deep down when you look at it and when you get those things and, you, you know, you become successful or you have the, 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 the capital and whatever else, you still have a feeling of emptiness. There's still not a feeling of like, I've made it and I'm happy. It's like, no, you conquered the mountain and now you look around and you go, shit, now what do I do? I got everything I thought I wanted. And I don't even know now. Like I'm, I'm, I'm more miserable than ever, you know? And I think like going through that, those sort of things really taught me that life's not just about making money. Life's not just about chasing the buck and, and working harder and grinding it out because everybody around you has nice stuff and you want to have nice stuff too. It's like all that stuff is irrelevant. You know, I, I remember... I, I passed the CFA and I bought myself a really nice watch. And within a month, Christian, I was looking at other watches and I caught myself and I was like, hold on a second, Joe, you just got this thing that you were chasing and you're already on to the next. And now I don't wear any watch, right? I, I literally just don't even care to express this, this, thing, right? Because it, it is meaningless. Yeah, of course, it's beautiful. It's nice. And, you know, yada, yada. It's nice to have this thing that, you know, you worked for and you earned and whatever, but it gives you nothing really. The happiness has to come from within yourself. And that only comes from really looking in the mirror and, and sitting with yourself and like being uncomfortable, you know? And I think it taught me a lot about how I want to move through life and, and what I want out of life. And for me, it's like, 
there's balance. That's so important, you know, to have balance and balance for me is between the two extremes of life, you know, like teetering always never really in perfect balance, but just kind of, Oh, some, some way having it. And I think, you know, that that's really required. And that's why I try so much to mix business with pleasure, you know, because it shouldn't just be, you know, just go, go, go hard, 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 just never, you know, never stop. And of course, you know, I'm going to, I love to compete. I love to be successful. I love to have wins. I'm an athlete. And you know, that's all that is so important to me, but it's also so important to really check in with yourself as well along the way and make sure you're, you're heading in the right direction and you're enjoying that, which it is that you're doing. And you mentioned something where you, 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 you bought a watch and then two months later you were looking at watches again and you, you said you caught yourself. And in today's world, you're exactly right. Um, it's so easy to just jump right back into it, whether it's you're hanging out with your friends, whether you're looking at social media and you go right back into just that tunnel vision, right? Because that's just what everybody else is doing. They're all just kind of following. And so how do you, what do you do, Joe, on a day-to-day basis or week basis or monthly basis to be intentional with yourself and say, hey, am I living my life? Am I enjoying it? Am I going out and playing ping pong with friends? Am I going out surfing? Am I doing these things that light me up, you know, and, and whatever, because otherwise you, you just start kind of swinging back into the, the day to day. And, and then, Oh, I'm just watching Netflix. or I'm just watching Siri, you know, these, these series and these TV series and you start realizing, well, shoot, that's, this is not what I signed up for. This is not why I'm doing what I'm doing. So how do you stay intentional and in making sure that you are unorthodox in the way you think about it and making sure that you are, um, living your life according to how you want to. I think, it, I think from the perspective that this thing can go at any moment, right? I could literally collapse today, you know, like it, there's, I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, right? There's no guarantee that I'm going to be here for 30 years and ha- having an understanding and appreciation for the life that you have, I think is so hard, Christian, when we live in the society of more, 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 look what they have and social media just showing you everybody's perfect life. And I go through periods of time where I'm off social media and I just find it to be completely toxic and I don't want to deal with it. And I take a step back. Right. And then other times I really lean into it and I'm enjoying it. And this is fun. And I connect with friends and I'm, you know, oh, I'm, I'm in, I'm in Mexico. Who's in Mexico. And you link up and you'd never have those connection points if you weren't connecting with those tools. But for me, I I mean, I've had periods of time where I really go deep in, you know, I, one whole year I caught sunrise almost 300 out of 365 days. And every day I would run to the East river or wherever I was for business, I would run to a mountaintop and catch that sun coming over the peak. And when you're out there at that time of day, nobody's out there. And I would talk. I would speak to myself, but more just giving thanks for the life I had and for the things that I normally took for granted. Thank you for sight today. Another day with mobility. Thank you for having this body that is healthy. You know, these are things that when you, when you take them for granted, it's like, you're then worrying about what I don't have. What don't I have? What should I have? What could I get? When you start your day with reflecting and being appreciative for like the basic needs that so I literally hit life lottery. I was born in a free country with an education. I have a great family. I have great friends and I have, you know, I can do absolutely anything I want. And, you know, having that perspective early in the morning, first time of the day when the sun is just putting on a show, I don't know, man, you ever see a really beautiful sunset? It's inspiring. But then the day's over. When you start your day with that, it, even if you didn't get a lot of sleep, I know it doesn't make any sense. It energizes you and inspires you throughout the day 
where you just have energy and you're feeling like you're on a high, man. It's, it's a great thing. And so I actually picked up meditation a number of years ago from a business meeting. I cold emailed a billionaire, this guy, I was cold, I was cold calling the Guggenheim Foundation in the New York, the art museum. I'm cold calling them, cold calling the CIO, cold calling the chief investment officer, no answer. Finally, the secretary says, Joe, the CIO just left, but nobody else on the team makes any decisions except for the board. The board makes all the decisions. Call somebody on the board. So I go to the board, I go to the website, I go down the list of who's on the board. It's like the who's who of like New York City hedge funds, right? And then there's one name I had never heard of. So I start looking him up, right? Find an old, like literally I'm Googling and looking up. Oh, he used to, he started one of these first, like, you know, quant hedge funds back in the day, systematic hedge funds back in the nineties, like really interesting guy, self-made billionaire. I, I basically just guessed his email address. I found his old company and I assumed that that email address, if he had had this business for 20 years, I assumed he still had the email address and it would still work. So I sent him a couple of emails, no answer, no answer. I started doing more research on him. I find a speech he gave about life and about these two pools of energy, you know, time and money. And how in the first half of your life, you're really focused on building up your pool of money. And then the second half of your life, you're really focused on how do you utilize your time? And I thought it was really interesting. And, he, and then I think that I wrote in the subject line, one of the, one of the quotes in his email was like the road to dissolution. And I, I remember kind of writing in the subject line, you know, highlighting that fact of, you know, Hey, we're all on this road to dissolution. I connected my story to his, he took me out for a lunch at one of these private, really fancy clubs in New York city. And, uh, 70 years old, this guy gave me eye to eye, two hours, like locked in. There was nothing else in the world that mattered to him except me in that moment, right? And it was so powerful and so beautiful and talked about anything and everything. At the end of the meeting, he says, Joe, I don't care what you take out of this, but you need to meditate every single day because it's going to change your life. And when he mailed me a book called Wherever You Go, There You Are, and I you know, recommend it, it's, it's, you know, but, but that process really helps to cultivate a discipline of awareness and focus. And that helps you as you move through life to really continue to be present in the moment and aware. And don't get me wrong. So often I can, that analytical mind can pull me back in, right? Or, you know, I was, I was surfing this winter in Costa Rica for a little while. And every day I was so slow. I was so chill. I was just, it was so great. And then I come back to New York city and within a month, I'm like, go, 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 go. I gotta go. I gotta, you know, I'm late to this and I'm running from here to there. And it's like catching yourself. I think seeing yourself like with the watch, catching myself, having the awareness to go, hold on. There's the monkey brain. There's the sheep in me. There's the, the, the animal in me. That's just going to do the thing that I'm, you know, like that I'm, I'm conditioned to do. Well, pause, take a moment, take a breath. Is that really what I want to do? And I think that's been something, those have been tools and ways that I've connected with myself. Also stretching. Oh my God. During the pandemic, I was sitting every day on a computer in front of a screen. And now you'll see I'm, sta I'm standing right now. I prefer to stand when I'm on, on business calls, stretching. When you're in a really deep stretch, your mind cannot be anywhere about yesterday or tomorrow. Your mind is feeling the pain of that stretch in that moment and you go to your breath. And that's the interesting thing. And when you're in that breath, your, your mind is really clear. And I think so much of that is like defragmenting your brain, you know, allowing things to settle. And so those are the ways that 
I've found really helpful to kind of connect with myself. But a great question, man. Thank you. Joe, incredible journey, incredible story as well. Just reaching out, man. I appreciate you being on here big time and just talking about your expertise and experience and, and your evolution, your journey in regards to, you know, capital raising and placement agents and building these amazing relationships and living your, your, your life according to how you want to and uh, the, the philosophies that you've been able to establish because of the devastation that happened sadly in your life, but helped you become the person you are now. Joe, I really appreciate you being on here. For those that want to reach out to you, that want to follow up with you, want to engage with you, want to just, you know, connect with you, maybe play some ping pong or go surfing. Uh, how do they do that, my man? I mean, you can look me up on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way. That's just Joe Azaro and uh, with Cedar Ridge Capital. Uh, or you can drop me an email, joe at cedarridge.capital. And we'd love to hear from you. Always happy to make new friends and new relationships. Any friend of yours, Christian, is a friend of mine. And thank you for having me on here. It's been great to get to know you. And I look forward to seeing you down in Florida next time I'm down there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely come on down. And guys, just make it easy. All those links in his email are in the description below. So to reach out to him. And Joe, I appreciate you making yourself so available. You put your email down there as well. Guys, that is my, my amazing guest, the managing partner of Cedar Ridge Capital, the one and only Joe Azero. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davis Podcast. Until next time. Be uncommon if you can. See.